So this is Dr. Bartu Wilson with another episode of Pill Talk Podcast, giving you a daily dose of medicine to educate, motivate, and inspire you to live at your full potential. I have a great guest on today, Dr. Scott Kincaid from Presbyterian School of Pharmacy. He's going to let us know a little bit about what he does there and how he's impacting the students' lives. And uh, Scott Kincaid, I'm the Assistant Dean of Student Affairs at Presbyterian College School of Pharmacy. I'm located in Clinton, South Carolina, and I'm really excited about sharing my journey with you. Nice, nice, nice. We're just ready and excited to get this conversation started. How are you doing today, Dr. Kincaid? I'm doing well. It's a beautiful day here in Clinton. <laughs> always, always. I remember those days down there. I don't think it ever rained. Now it's messing with you. <laughs> <laughs> but, all right, so... We're going to get to know you a little bit until, uh, and then you're going to talk a little bit about your career path and where you're at now. Um, from your resume, your background, seemed like you did a lot of great things. You touched a lot of uh, different schools and was able to impact a lot of people. So before we get into everything, let's start with you. Uh, how did you get your spark to become a pharmacist or get into the pharmacy field? So um, that started... For me, uh, really in middle school, I um, I was one of those kids that I always had some, you know, uh, some drive to be something um, bigger. And I feel like um, I, I went through several different, you know, options. I started off thinking that I was going to be a marine biologist and um, I wanted to stay in West Virginia and thought, oh, well, there's no ocean, you know, close to West Virginia. So I'm going to have to rethink that one. And, um, and I then, you know, navigated sort of to medicine and thought, hey, you know, I'd love to be a surgeon. I have a uh, benign familial tremor. So like as somebody who shakes all the time, not a good thing for them to be holding a scalpel. Um, so I was trying to find really like where I was going to land. And uh, I had an instance where. I was talking to um, one of my teachers and they asked me, um, they asked me uh, like what I wanted to do. And I, I just really, I wasn't quite sure um, what that next thing was going to be. I, I knew that it wasn't going to be um, a physician and, or a marine biologist. And one day, um, one of my teachers, uh, I was, I, I call it, um, commonly had medications with me, like, you know, Tylenol or ibuprofen. And one of my teachers actually said, Hey, could I get um, some ibuprofen? I was like, yeah, sure. Absolutely. This was back in the day when students were um, allowed to have medications at school. Um, and I was like, yeah, sure. Just make sure you eat something with that. That'll tear up your stomach. And they giggled and said, Hey, you should be a pharmacist. And I went, hmm, interesting. And then that sort of started the, the thought and, and I just I went down that road. I started thinking about how um, it would fit me as a person and, and I would be able to help people because I love helping people. Um, and it would also give me that opportunity to, to do something that was, that was bigger and greater than me. So. Nice, nice, nice. That's full circle how that just came along. But basically you, you did your first consultation <laughs> with a patient and that <laughs> led you down your path to become a pharmacist. Yep, exactly. Right. So they, they sparked that idea like, why would you should become a pharmacist? So 
you just decided from that point you want to become one. So what was the education? Did you do a four and four program um, when you went to pharmacy school? I, I did a two four. So I was at West Virginia University. Um, I did two years undergrad, four years pharmacy school at West Virginia University School of Pharmacy, um, go Mountaineers. And I had a, a wonderful time there. Um, the faculty that that taught me uh, truly inspired me and and really helped me become who I am today. Um, I one of my faculty members there, um, Doug Slane, he actually ended up being my mentor. Um, because I went on to do a PGY-1 at WVU Hospitals and then on to do a PGY-2 um, infectious diseases at WVU Hospitals under um, Doug as well. So it was it was a great opportunity for me and, and something that, that really set me on the right path for my career. All right, great. So just for anyone not knowing what it is, so a PGY-1 is a pharmacy residency year one and a PGY-2 is a pharmacy residency year two. Um, for the people that's listening, can you break down uh, just the intro of a PGY-1 and then let's talk about your PGY-2 because that was kind of led you or got, made you into the career that you have now with being an infectious disease specialist and educator. Yeah, sure. Um, so the the PGY-1, so actually back whenever I did it, they weren't called PGY-1s, they were called pharmacy practice residencies. And the pharmacy practice residency was really built to um, expose you to as many different things as it can on the inpatient side of the hospital. So um, we were in the hospital working alongside um, the physicians and nurses and respiratory therapists and physical therapists and all those individuals um, day in and day out. And, you know, they were long hours. Um, they, they call it residency because you basically live there. And um, so it was, it was a, a lot of time. It was a lot of, a lot of work, but a lot of learning. And the folks that, that I had the pleasure of training under um, at West Virginia University, they were just amazing. And um, I still, to this day, um, take things and use things that they taught me um, back, you know, I guess, 16 years ago. So. Nice. So let's talk about your PGY2, because that's what a lot of people want to know and understand, because you went into that year focusing on infectious diseases. So can you break it down, um, uh, break it down about that residency program? Yeah, of course. So um, it, it was interesting whenever I actually, um, jumping back to pharmacy school a little bit, I, I didn't know what I really wanted to do other than I wanted to be a pharmacist. And I started off thinking that I was gonna be a retail pharmacist. Um, and as I got more accustomed to like what the opportunities were for pharmacists in the inpatient realm. That's when I decided to do a PGY-1. And then whenever I got in my PGY-1, I was actually doing um, some teaching and like helping with labs and, and some things that were more focused on infectious diseases. And Doug, um, he, he pulled me aside one day and he said, Hey, have you, you know, you seem to have a knack for ID. Have you ever thought about, doing a PGY-2. And I was like, well, you know, my original plan was I was just going to go and be a clinical pharmacist somewhere. I wasn't, you know, necessarily going to specialize, but I do like infectious diseases a lot. So, um, you know, I, I would be, I would be 
interested in that. And he said, well, you know, you need to sleep on it, think of it, think on it overnight and, and get back to me tomorrow and let me know, you know, do you really, is this something you truly want? And I said, okay, I, I'll, I'll get back to you. And overnight, I just thought about it. And the more that I thought about it, the more that I thought about it, I was like, man, you know, that really would be great. I would, I would love to do that. And, um, one of the things that Doug said to me at that point, he said, you know, you have to understand like right now is the time for you to, to do this training and to get it um, taken care of. And that will be with you for the rest of your life, for the rest of your career. And I was like, man, you know, that's a really good point. And there's really no better time to do it than now. Um, so I slept on it overnight. I came back and, you know, I told, I told Doug, I was like, yep, I'm in, I I'm, I'm interested. He said, are you sure? And I said, no, I'm a hundred percent. I absolutely want to do it. And he said, okay. So we, you know, he, um, early committed me to the residency and, um, I, I was thrilled to be, you know, planning to do that. So that next year I spent a lot of time, um, about six months, um, of the year, I was on the infectious disease consult service, and I got to work with um, some awesome physicians, uh, Rashida Kaku and and um, Arif Sawari. Um, they were the ID attendings that were like the main ones, and then Melanie Fisher was also there. And Melanie was actually um, she was one of the ones that got me linked into travel medicine, and I, I did my first um, my first mission trip with. Um, the school of medicine it actually it was because of Dr. Fisher. Um, I was working with her in the HIV clinic there at WVU, and um, they were talking about this mission trip that they that was going to be happening. And I was like, "Oh man, that would be cool." Does the pharmacist go? And they were they were like, "We've never had a pharmacist, but we would love to have a pharmacist." And I was like, "Sign me up! I, I totally want to go." So um, I had you know had the responsibility of figuring out where the money was coming from, obviously. And, uh, the Dean of the school of pharmacy was, was awesome. He pitched in some money for me and, and, um, and Doug was very accommodating. He was like, yeah, if you can get everything set up, I think it would be great. So I ended up spending, you know, 24 days, um, down in, um, San Lucas, Tolaman, um, Guatemala and mm -hmm. basically was in the middle of nowhere, Guatemala. I didn't, you know, I spoke some Spanish. I had Spanish as classes, but I was not fluent at yeah. all. And being dropped right in the middle, it was just an amazing experience. You get to see infectious diseases there that um, are so much more exacerbated or, or um, serious or severe than what you do everywhere else. So, um, you know, it, it was very cool. It was a very good learning experience. Um, I've continued that, you know, those mission trips. Um throughout my, my career and I've been doing them for, you know, well, I guess 14 years now. So, yeah. um, something that was very impactful, but the infectious disease residency really put me into that spot where I was able to find my niche, um, within the profession and be able to do those things that, that really gave me passion and satisfaction and, and helped me, um, to center myself every year that I would go it would sort of bring me back to, you know, to center so that I knew where I was going and what I was doing, why I was doing everything that I was doing as well. Okay. 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 Great. Great. We definitely want to talk a little bit more about the mission trips um, a little later in this, um, in this podcast, but for infectious disease. So you did the residency. It was a year long residency. Um, you had your mentor, Dr. Doug, is that correct? Doug Slane. Yeah. Doug Slane, Dr. Doug Slane. And uh, he kind of guided you through this. 
um, because he saw that you have a knack for infectious diseases and that was your niche to get it into the pharmacy field. Right. So with that education of infectious disease, what was your next step? Did you jump into uh, the hospital realm or did you get into uh, education to teach infectious disease? Sure. So it, it was both. Um, so I actually, I became a faculty member at South University School of Pharmacy in Savannah, Georgia. And um, I had a practice site at St. Joseph's Candler Health System right there in Savannah. And I was focused mainly at Candler. So I, I spent a lot of time at, at Candler Hospital. And um, I, I had the pleasure of, of working alongside um, Janine Gibson. We hired um, Janine on as, as the infectious disease specialist for the um, for the health system that she was focused over at the St. Joseph's Hospital and I was over at Candler. Um, I wasn't employed by the hospital, but Janine was. She was like their official person, um, but I was working alongside her. I, I did the stuff over at um, Candler. We ended up um, collaborating with Jason Lynn, who is the um, infectious disease pharmacist at Memorial Health right there in Savannah. And we set up a citywide antimicrobial management program that's still up and running today um, that it, oh, nice. it looped in all of the, the private practice infectious disease physicians there in Savannah that were privileged at Memorial and at the St. Joseph Candler um, site. And we all worked collaboratively to, um, to, you know, try to improve the antimicrobial resistance within the community and, and to just use antimicrobials more appropriately. Um, so I did that. That was that was one of the things that I was very involved with from a practice standpoint. And then obviously, you know, I taught a lot of courses, including infectious diseases, medical Spanish, advanced ID seminar, um, a ver variety of other um, courses there at South University. But uh, I spent a lot of time over at Candler. Um, I actually did moonlighting there as well. So I would, I would after my day was over as a faculty member, I would actually stay on and, and staff the evening shifts um, over there and work with some just amazing pharmacists and amazing people over there as well. Man. Uh, so working with Candler and the infectious diseases down there um, at South with South University in Savannah. Um, what are some type? What are some cases that you've probably ran into that you were able to help out or um, fix? Yeah, sure. Um, I don't know about necessarily fix, but maybe improve. Um, <laughs> it, you know, obviously there's, you know, with infectious diseases, there's a lot of um, there's a lot of opportunity to narrow antimicrobial spectrum um, for the coverage that you're using and to try to prevent further resistance. Um, we, you know, we had a number of patients that um, were quite sick that, you know, either some made it, some didn't. Um, and, you know, you, you try to do your best to improve the situation. You obviously want to try to um, make the biggest impact on the patient and, and help them um, to either heal or, you know, have a complete cure from their infectious disease. But sometimes, you know, it doesn't happen, unfortunately, and you have to deal with that. But uh, there were a lot of situations where, you know, we were able to actually um, de-escalate patients safely from their antimicrobials and, and have a better impact on their long term, um, you know, from lower rates of um, resistance and, and also potentially less 
um, super infections that may occur, you know, C. diff, trying to reduce those rates and those kind of things. Um, I have a variety of different individual um, situations that um, occurred over the years where I had physicians that would call me who I'd made relationships with. One in particular, um, Giff Lorenz. I remember one Sunday morning, he called me asking about one of his patients in the care unit that um, had an infectious disease that just wasn't responding. And um, there was an intermediate strain of um, organism that was being treated that, that we needed to make a change and switch over. Um, that this was one of those situations where it was unfortunately probably a little too late, but the, the patient at least was able to make it a little longer until, um, until there was family that could come and, and, you know, say their goodbyes. But those type of things, I, I feel like, you know, we all too often um, are focused on, you know, just trying to, um, trying to fix everything mm. and, not necessarily focused on um, making sure the families have what they need and that, you know, things are, are going in the right direction. I think as a profession, we, we do an okay job at it of like bringing families in. And I think throughout the years that I've been in healthcare, it's gradually gotten better, um, especially in those times where patients are declining, um, making sure that the, the family has those moments to spend with their family and has that closure. And that's something that has been a struggle obviously with COVID and, and, you know, having patients who haven't been able to, um, to actually physically see their, their family members, a lot of them do it via FaceTime and, and those things, but. Yeah. I mentioned COVID. Yeah. I got a quick question on that. Um, was you able to do some research and some looking into COVID? I know a lot of people probably got questions. If you got a quick one, two, response about COVID or people making sure that they get the vaccine. Are you able to enlighten us on that at the moment? Yeah, absolutely. So um, it's, it's been a very interesting um, time going through all of what has been the pandemic. Um, the, the thing that I've found to be very disheartening is there's a lot of misinformation out there about the vaccines and um, it's been politicized to a point that, is really just unnecessary and unhealthy. Um, folks really need to understand that the vaccines are safe. Um, and when you think about the, the things that can happen from vaccines in comparison to what we know can happen with COVID, um, COVID is so much worse. Um, any side effects that you might have from the vaccine is gonna be very short, short-lived and, and in the, large, vast majority of times, very mild and not severe. Um, so, you know, protecting those around you, protecting um, yourself, even, you know, you need to get the vaccine. It's, it is the, the way that we can help get out of this pandemic. Um, and the more people that get it, the better off we are as a society um, from a protection standpoint. And, Anytime that, you know, folks hear about new technology, they're always skeptical, whether it's a phone or a computer or TVs or whatever. And this is, um, this is a, a new type of vaccine, but it's being work, been being worked on for decades, um, the, the type of vaccine that is, the mRNA vaccines. Um, so really, you know, folks 
um, need to make sure that they have all the information and the right information, not misinformation that's out there um, before they make their decision. And to do the right thing, especially, you know, if you're a healthcare provider, um, we have a higher responsibility in society to do the right thing and to um, protect our patients. And part of that is um, getting vaccinated ourselves. Thank you. Thank you. I'm glad you was able to, to give some light onto that. Being an infectious disease educator and a teacher, whatever. So people can understand that, okay, they're hearing it from someone that's actually in this field and does this on a daily, that the benefits of the vaccine and how it can help you, your family and society get back to the normal life that we've been used to living before 2020. I think, I think we've been in this, it seems like we've been in this like two to three years, but. A long time, yeah, <laughs> indeed. Hopefully we can get out of the, the pandemic sometime soon. That's right. All right. So we talked a little bit about your PG1, PGY2, how you got into the infectious disease. You being a um, professor at South University. Mm-hmm. Now we're going to move a little further and keep going down your career path. Yep. Um, see that you taught at a couple other schools and they, the other school that you taught at was infectious disease as well like you yeah. taught that as well mm-hmm. yeah so my my next step in my career um i moved to kentucky um lexington and actually became uh the internal medicine um, pharmacy clinical coordinator um, for uk healthcare and whenever i started there i was practicing um internal medicine which a lot of people don't uh, don't realize that Infectious diseases is a subspecialty of internal medicine. So um, it there's a lot of infectious diseases within internal medicine practice. Um, so it, it was nice to be able to, to sort of branch back out a little bit and, and broaden um, my skill set by stepping into that um, clinical coordinator position. Uh, I After being there a couple months, they came to me and asked um, if I would be willing to take on the infectious diseases and internal medicine um, PGY2s at at UK. So I ended up serving as the residency program director um, for UK healthcare for internal medicine and infectious diseases for about four years, four of the years that I was there. Um, I had several awesome residents um, that I'm superbly proud of all of them. They did an amazing job and they're they're out doing amazing things um, in the world right now. And it was a it was an opportunity for me um, to grow and, and do more things than what I had been doing and had done. Um, after about a year and a half to two years um, at UK, uh, there was a couple situations that came up where um, my boss, actually the director of clinical pharmacy services, had to go out on um, family medical leave and and ended up um, she she was diagnosed with cancer, um, and ultimately succumbed to the cancer. And, um, they came to me asking if I would step in as the interim um, director of clinical pharmacy services. Um, and I obliged, I was, I was happy to do so. Um, at that same time, one of my peers was actually out on um, FML for the birth of her child. Um, so I was, I was serving as the, um, 
the clinical coordinator for cardiovascular services at the time. And also um, they had asked me to, to step in and serve as the clinical coordinator for transplant services because that coordinator had changed positions as well. So I was, I was in a lot of positions um, <laughs> there for about uh, four or five months. And um, ultimately, you know, they gradually, you know, transitioned back over to the people that, that had them. And then we hired um, a new person for the, um, the clinical coordinator for transplant services. But then I also transitioned, um, I interviewed and, and transitioned full-time to the director of clinical pharmacy services role. And I was in that role um, for about three and a half years um, while at UK. And we were going through a period of, of great growth. Um, a lot of beds were being added to the hospital. We ended up um, adding a lot of pharmacists. And, and um, I was a part of the, the boost program for internal medicine and, and the Marquee 2 study um, to show that medication reconciliation really makes a big impact on outcomes. Um, so we, you know, we were doing a lot. We were very busy. We were growing. Um, it was a very busy time, but I was also an adjunct faculty at the, the College of Pharmacy there and had the, the pleasure to teach a lot of amazing students and work alongside um, a lot of just really talented individuals within the College of Pharmacy there and um, made some great connections and relationships that I still have today. And uh, it, it was it was something that, you know, I obviously I will never forget. Nice, nice, nice. Man, it seemed like you had a lot of hats on. <laughs> it was a lot of hats. <laughs> um, how was you able to focus in and make sure that all of those positions that you were help, holding at the same time were being completed at the, the highest ability? Sure, yeah. Um, so I'll be honest, I don't know how... how <laughs> Uh, effectively I did that. Um, you know, I, it was one of those things I spent a lot of hours. Uh, it was a lot of time at the hospital and, um, just, you know, trying to communicate with people, you know, have, um, time to actually sit down and have meetings with the teams to make sure that they were being heard, that any resources that they needed, I was trying to actually acquire those resources for them. Um, I spent a lot of time talking to people and trying to get, um, information and, and to help um, support those teams. You know, at that point, um, whenever you're the, the leader of a team, but it's not necessarily your specialty, you you have to you know revert back to trusting all of those individuals that are the specialists in those areas to to let them help guide the things that that need to happen. And you know, obviously. Um, having as much time with them and spending as much time looking into the data and the details surrounding it was part of what I did. So, um, you know, it, it was a very busy time. There was a lot of, you know, a lot of things that had occurred during that time that I had to, that I had to help with that were some that were pleasant, some that weren't. And it was just one of those things I had to put the time in. So, uh, you know, my family at the time obviously um, suffered for those those months, um, just I wasn't able to spend as much time with them. And that um, that obviously isn't good work life balance. That's why people don't hold five jobs at the same time. So yeah, uh, you said one thing that's um, the sign of a great leader, right? You said you had to 
step back and let the people that was expertise in their field do their job. But that's the sign of a great leader is being able to give your team autonomy so that they can do what they need to do so that you can lead the way. Like a lot of people try to like micromanage, but sitting back and being like, you know what? This is what you're good at. Have it. Just let me know what the next steps we need to to make sure that the project or whatever we are performing gets done at the highest level. Exactly. Yep. Absolutely. I completely agree with that. I, I've, one thing that I do not say that I am is a micromanager. I, and I, <laughs> I also hate being micromanaged. So, <laughs> you know, that's that's definitely something that I agree. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. So we're going to step into it. All right. You at my old uh, college, Presbyterian College School of Pharmacy. I'm a proud graduate of the class of 2015. Uh, happy to see you there now uh, with all this information, knowledge and the expertise you got. So how are you enjoying uh, Presbyterian so far? I love Presbyterian, honestly. <laughs> um, the, the culture here is just absolutely wonderful. The people that I work with, um, are amazing individuals and they're all so rooted in God's love that it is, it is absolutely just a wonderful place. Um, it's awesome to actually be able, uh, to, to really incorporate, you know, my spirituality into my work. And I think that's something that I haven't been able to do necessarily as freely as what I can hear. Um, and I think that helps a lot with just, you know, my approach and the things that I, that I do, it, it helps me also just with a balance of, you know, um, my happiness. So the, the people outside of the school of pharmacy are also all very supportive and, and very good, um, to work with. I, I think we have a really strong program here. We obviously do a really good job of preparing pharmacists to be out and, um, help patients and have a really high Netflix pass rates. We really, you know, we, we do a lot of um, good work here and our program is very effective. So I'm very happy that, um, that I was able to join this program and to, to bring my experience and, and um, my approach to it as well. All right. Great. Yeah. Being at uh, Presbyterian um, Clinton, South Carolina gives you that family feel Um being like the second class there, it wasn't with so many of us at the school so far, but everyone, literally everyone knew everyone's name. <laughs> we knew each other's name. We knew each other's from um, the community. Um, we could literally just walk down the street to like the local restaurants to support the local restaurants and everything. So um, that's the energy that a lot of campuses don't have. And as you can tell, Presbyterian College is actually a pretty good place to be. Um, so we're going to jump into how did you get to PC or, yeah, since you was at Kentucky, what led you to PC? Was it um, something that, because you're not from South Carolina, so it was just something that you was looking for a change and just wanted to try it out or? So um, after Kentucky, I had actually gone to Lee Con School of Pharmacy down at Bradenton, Florida, and I was there for about a year and a half. And um, it was time for another change for my family. 
And whenever I left Kentucky, part of the reason that I left was my wife and I had our daughter. She's three now. And it was one of those situations where I needed a little bit more work-life balance. Um, I was spending a lot of time at the hospital, you know, and I just, from the time that I would be spending away from her, I wasn't going to be able to be as involved with her life as what I wanted to be. So um, it was time for change. That's when we went to, to Bradenton um, and I, I transitioned down there, had better work-life balance, was able to um, spend more time with my daughter while she was young. And um, whenever it was time to change, I started looking. I, I have a, a, a long-term friend who actually is the chair of the Pharmaceutical and Administrative Sciences Department here at Presbyterian College, Dr. Gumina. Um, Dr. Gumina was actually my best man or one of my best men in my wedding. Nice. And um, I met him at South University way back um, in you know, 2007, 2008. And he had been trying to recruit me since he came here in, uh, I think, 2013. Um, he had been trying to recruit me here and just things had not lined up quite perfectly. And then this time it was like, they had a position, they needed an infectious disease guy. And, um, you know, here I am with an opportunity to move. And it's obviously much closer to, to home being from West Virginia. Um, Florida was just way too far from family. So it's time for that move, interviewed, and here I am. Hey, glad to have you there. Glad to have you there. So now you have Presbyterian College. You you know, you're a man of many hats. You like to wear them at the same time. So you are an associate professor of infectious disease and also the assistant dean of student affairs, right? Yeah, correct. Okay. So let's jump into your roles and responsibilities as a assistant dean of student affairs. Um, so let's start off like, what is that position and how are you, uh, yeah, like what is that position? Yeah, so um, in academia for pharmacy, you have like the academic side that is all the classes, all the things that are um, are very defined and that we teach. Then you have everything else. And the assistant dean of student affairs is like the everything else person. So, you know, whenever it comes to, um, you know, the professionalization of students and helping students make the transition from, you know, pre-pharmacy into pharmacy and also from pharmacy program to being a full-fledged pharmacist and dealing with all of the professional um, responsibilities and things that you have to be able to do and do well once you're out. That's part of what my responsibilities are. I help with, um, you know, counseling students whenever they are um, maybe less than professional and need to be more professional. So helping them grow and, and identify those areas of opportunity and, and working through those things with them. Um, I spend a lot of time, you know, helping patient or I'm sorry, helping students. I always say patients, but helping students go through and figure out, um, you know, what, what it is that they need to change to be better. Um, and anytime that students have issues, whether it's, you know, um, something within their personal life, if they have um, challenges that are facing them, you know, with the process of becoming a professional, becoming a pharmacist, um, finding a job, you know, figuring out what their career path is. All of that is sort of what I try to do is try to help them navigate towards what 
their best career path is going to be and what they most would like to do once they're done with us here at Presbyterian. Um, so I spend a lot of time talking to students and helping them sort of discover themselves. All right. All right. So what is some of the more common uh, shortcomings you probably would see as students transition from being a undergrad to being a medical professional? And then what are some of the things that you give them tools to help them build on that professionalism? Yeah. Um, so there's a lot of different parts to that. So I, I feel like um, in the, today's time, there's a huge vulnerability um, within our students with regard to social media. Um, they, they tend to, you know, enter the program and they have the same mentality with their, their social media as what they had prior to being a pharmacy student or um, working towards a more of a professional um, appearance. And they have to understand that, you know, like it's perfectly fine for them to be them, but they have to also realize that whenever they do things um, as a pharmacy student, especially as a pharmacy student at Presbyterian College, that that relationship, it can potentially look bad on the school. Um, it can make them look bad to potential employers going forward. Um, so they, they need to make sure that when it, you know, if they're using social media, that they're doing it in a good way, um, that they have privacy settings set so that, you know, if they don't want everybody and the brother seeing all of these things that, um, that those privacy settings are set the right way and, and that it doesn't leave them potentially vulnerable. Um, I feel like there's also, you know, the, the general um, challenge of transitioning to the point of realizing that everything that you do and everything that you say is held to a higher standard whenever you become a pharmacy student and ultimately a pharmacist. And especially if you're talking about things that have to do with health and well-being, those things garner more weight because you are a health professional and um, they need to make that transition and start to realize that whenever they're saying things that it needs to be based on evidence-based medicine and, and based on um, the reality as opposed to just, um, you know, opinion of someone who isn't necessarily trained to make those type of uh, distinctions. So there's a lot of challenges I feel that, that students go through of figuring out, first off, like, how, how do I actually conduct myself as a professional? How do I make myself look the best to everybody that is around me and also to those future employers? You can also realize that when you are putting things out there, whether it's social media or whether it's not, um, you have to think about the things that you're putting out there and how it can be viewed by everyone else in the community and, and anybody that hears it. Yeah, I understand that. Um, I give an example, like saying a bad joke, right? Yep. So you might find it funny and maybe your circle might find it funny, but if someone's on the outside looking in, they might hear what you're saying and take it as like your true opinion or fact and be like, oh man, and judge you off of that where that wasn't your intention. So I see what you're saying where they need to be more intentional on posting or more intentional on hmm, 
I won't say hiding, but yeah, I get what you're being for a professional. Yeah. Um, so we got that part about it, but the second part of the question is what tools do you give them or what knowledge and information you give them so that they could make these adjustments um to come off in the best light possible? Yeah, yeah, of course. So um obviously you, you know, whenever whenever you find these opportunities, sitting down and having conversations with the students so that they they get the full realization about the situation. Um, I think is one of the best ways because it's more personal to them at that point. Um, it's really difficult. I feel for people like if you watch a video or you go through a training module, um, around soft skills, I think we all inherently go, well, well, that's not me. You know, like I, I get what they're saying, but that's not necessarily me. So, having those individual experiences where you have somebody who did something that wasn't perfect because who does perfect things. And you, you have that conversation where, you know, you're able to go, Hey, you know, like this is one of the ways that that could have been viewed. Think about that. You know, maybe you could do it better. Um, there's a lot of, a lot of like interpersonal communication and, and interpersonal touch points with this position and those aspects of trying to help have a conversation with the student and guide them down the right path. Um, there are other parts to things that I think, you know, um, one of the things that I'm pretty passionate about is emotional intelligence and helping the students improve their emotional intelligence and, and recognize situations where they weren't necessarily the best, best self moderators or they weren't as self-aware as what they probably should have been and could or could have been. And helping to sort of point that out, but also um, even potentially incorporating some of that into our growth and assessment portfolio, um, helping them to gain a little bit more um, emotional intelligence, I think is one of the things that that I plan to do more as we go forward. Yeah, that's great. That's great. Um, so with this position, um, is there an example that you can give where you came into a situation with a student and you had to have this type of conversation? And then what was the outcome of that? If you don't mind sharing with us, please. Sure. Um, so there's there's a lot of little things that you do, the little interactions that you have that help students. The big ones are, are a lot um, more entertaining or interesting and, and impactful, hopefully. Um, you know, one specifically where I had a student who, um, who just like what I was saying, you know, had, had things on social media that, that weren't the best representation of themselves and subsequently not the best representation of, you know, Presbyterian and having that conversation, um, helping them understand um, that those things aren't necessarily, you know, what we want put out there and, and the, by that relationship that we have, um, when you put things out there and you are affiliated with us, it's like us putting it out there as well. So, um, helping them to understand those things that, you know, whenever you say things, you may not mean it in a bad way, but others may take it in a bad way and, and recognizing that, um, that potential risk, 
not only for us, but for the student as well. Um, we try to, you know, have that conversation. And, and I feel like um, those conversations are helpful. Um, the one student in particular, I feel, um, gets it and has, you know, has really pivoted and made a good um, transition to a better direction. Um, also, you know, having students go through those emotional intelligence courses that are out there that help just from a, a, a third party. It's not Dr. Kincaid, you know, <laughs> telling them for the eight, eighth time something that they've heard eight times, you know, that kind of a thing. Um, it just, it adds another perspective. And I feel like that also helped in this one particular situation to really give a different perspective and help that student. Okay. So I got a couple more questions to go. Uh, this next question is about to be a real good one. Um, since you're the man of many hats, yep. work-life balance. Um, how are you able to obtain this now wherein uh, being a associate professor, assistant dean, uh, father, dealing with COVID, how are you able to kick back and just relax and be able to be your 100% um, yourself when you're at work and giving your all? Yeah, so that, that is a challenge. That's something that I've struggled with my whole career. Work-life balance, um, it's something where, um, you know, you, I, and I, I feel our profession does this to a degree and forces folks into potentially bad situations of work-life balance. Um, we're all so competitive and we want to be the best, you know, and there's only one the best, you know, but we were all pushing so hard and, um, and really driving to the point that we want to make things better. And that's great, but we don't want to push things to the point where the, um, the cost of making things better is to the detriment of, you know, our personal happiness, health, our families, those, those things. So I, I struggled with this throughout the first part of my career and, and even, you know, up to, um, I would say even more recently, um, learning how to say no is something that everybody needs to focus on early in their career and identifying ways to say no, um, and, and still, you know, not, um, not impair yourself for, from future opportunities as well. Um, realizing that, you know, if you say yes and you don't do it well, that may impair you from future opportunities more than just saying no um, initially. Um, so, you know, I feel like for me now, I have enough of a focus and I'm, I'm at least comfortable enough with who I am within the profession that I don't feel like I need to be the best in the public eye. I need to be the best at what I feel is important and I need to do my job effectively. Um, I feel like my most important job is being a dad to my daughter and that, you know, number two obviously is what I do here, but, um, I'm not going to, I'm not going to do either of them halfway. I'm going to do all of the, you know, both jobs a hundred percent. Um, but just being able to make that divide between, you know, whenever I go home, I'm home and I unplug and I, I do my best to not, you know, creep back into email or, or any of the things that um, would be, you know, distracting away from my daughter or my wife. So um, 
I think that's something that I've gotten a lot better at over the past couple of years. And especially here, I feel like um, our dean is an amazing man who supports work-life balance and has that focus that um, the family is so important. Um, if you're if you're not happy outside of here, and if you don't have you know good health outside of here, what you bring into here is not going to be good either. Um, and that's where we all try to focus on helping each other and, and supporting each other and making sure that we do have good work-life balance. That's good. That's good. One thing that you said that stuck out to me was the fact that you said, um, learn how to say no, because if you said yes and do a poor job, that can hinder you from more response, more um, opportunities in the future than other than saying no from uh, the beginning. And I had to think about that. Like, you know what? That makes a lot more sense because if someone looks at you and think that you're going to perform at a high quality and then you come in and perform at your not at your best just to say the least they will have a different viewpoint of you at that moment instead of you just saying no i can't or i'm unable to and then finding another opportunity later in the future so hopefully someone else catches that as well and learn the power of no yep. all right and then my last question i think this is the question we probably heard our whole lives what are your next goals? Like, what are your career goals, dreams five years from now? What do you see yourself? Yeah, so um, I see myself here at Presbyterian. I, I really, I feel like this is home. Um, and I want to, I, I want to, you know, continue to foster this position um, and grow it and, and hopefully um, make an even bigger impact. Um, I do, I do have some other aspirations that, that I would like to accomplish, um, you know, being able to, to incorporate some um, practice it into my, my regular day as well. I have some ideas of things that I could potentially do here at, at the school that would be um, practice associated with the wellness center that we have here and, um, and those opportunities. So I, I do feel like there are some things that I'm going to try to do over the next few years. Um, but I do feel like, you know, Presbyterian is where I'm supposed to be and um, want to stay here. So next five years, definitely um, here. And, you know, some of those goals really, uh, you know, having re-engagement um, in my mission work um, now that the pandemic is um, to a point where we're able to start going back on those mission, mission trips. Um, I've been going to Guatemala since 2007 and I haven't seen my folks in Guatemala since uh, 2019. So I need, I need to get back there and, um, see my people and do the work that uh, you know, the Lord wants me to do. So, um, so those, those things I want to get re-engaged with and, and continue to do them well. Um, I, I think those are, those are some good five-year goals. Good, good. Man, I got one more question because I did say this in the beginning that we're going to come back to the mission trips. Sure. So, one, um, if you can tell us the importance of a mission trip, because I know a lot of people uh, see people do mission trips and kind of think it's one sided, but it's a two way street because it's the pleasure of helping others and then others that's being helped receiving that help. So, if you're able to, can you just um, talk a little bit about that? Yeah, of course. 
Um, so, you know, from the time that I started doing mission trips, one of the things that I recognized was my sense of purpose whenever I would return back to the States, especially, um, would be so enhanced. Um, and I would, I really would find my center and be able to be more effective. Um, we all, you know, we all know burnout and how burnout affects us. Um, one of the things that I feel like my mission trips have, have done for me is help me to sort of stave off some of that burnout to really go back and find, um, you know, a good perspective and to be healthy from a mental state um, and spiritually as well. Um, spending that time and, and getting to see um, individuals who really don't have access to healthcare. Um, you know, in the States, we have, we have a lot of opportunity for healthcare and um, it may or may not be exactly how it should be, but it is um, tremendously better than other situations in other countries. And, um, and, it, and being able to have that perspective and recognize, you know, what, what things you do have, it makes you more grateful for what you do have when you come back. Um, you do have the opportunity to help a lot of individuals who have literally next to nothing and to be able to provide them healthcare or even just as simple as providing them vitamins. Um, the, the grateful look in their eye, the love that they have for you just for your kindness of, of going there to help them is transformative. And it really, I think, especially from a trainee standpoint, I've taken multiple students and residents through, throughout the years on those mission trips with me. And I feel like it makes a whole different um, impression on them than what they're, what they get in pharmacy school. It adds another element to it, another layer that helps them be a lot more well-rounded and to take a better and more empathetic approach to practice. Yeah. Man, that's, that's amazing. Um, what is the name of the organization that you go with, just in case somebody wants to look into it? Yeah, absolutely. So it's Faith in Practice, and you can find them at faithinpractice.org. And they're based in Houston, Texas. Uh, amazing organization. They've been doing work in Guatemala for over 25 years. They started back in the 90s. Um, and I I love my folks that I work with. Um, I'm their I'm their pharmacy director. So I essentially work with all of the, I lead their pharmacy team. Um, I've worked on their village teams, on their surgical teams. I've done a little bit of everything that they do um, throughout the, the last 14 years. And now I just, I help with acquiring the medications, setting the formulary, divide, you know, devising the plan for what is going to happen whenever um, they get out into the village and how the medication aspect of the, you know, medication delivery aspect of things will happen. Um, we end up, whenever we go down for the pharmacy team, we end up packing, we take bulk size containers and, and pack it down into patient size containers. And it ends up being somewhere, you know, between like three and 5 million tablets that we end up dividing into um, patient sized containers. So it's a, it's a good bit of work. A lot of people um, end up having somewhere between 10 to 15 American volunteers. And then we have a group of Guatemalan um, volunteers that are typically students, like teenagers that come and help us. Um, and it's, it's just an absolutely fun week. Um, you get to see 
a whole bunch of people who don't speak Spanish working alongside a whole bunch of people who speak only Spanish and they're trying to learn, you know, English and Spanish, um, respectively. So it's, uh, it's a lot of fun and we get a lot of good work done. All right. So, uh, this is a question just for me right here, because you said you're like the director of the faith and practice, uh, the pharmacy director and creating a formulary, um, and all of this other good stuff. Was it your experience at the hospital that helped you be able to take that role and be able to formulate the formularies and, and other things like that for the mission trips? I think it's, it's been all of my pharmacy experience. I, you know, I started off at CVS, you know, working for, um, for CVS whenever I was a teenager and all through school and then, then went to residency and all that stuff. I feel like it's been just a bunch of the different experiences that I've had. And then obviously the, the time that I've spent on mission teams, um, to be able to know like what is the right way you know i think we as pharmacists are expected to be problem solvers and mm -hmm. to to be able to work through workflows and and figure out how um to best optimize things and i think that just through the years that's that's what my um beloved career has given me is that ability nice 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 man so if anybody want to get in contact with you to one, either learn about infectious diseases, um, want to get on one of these mission trips with faith and practice, yep. or want to up their professionalism, <laughs> how can they reach out to you um, to get in contact with you? Uh, yeah, of course. Um, so you can reach me via email at S-E-K-I-N-C-A-I-D at presby.edu. And um, shoot me an email and I will get back to you as quickly as I can. All right. All right. So, Dr. Kincaid, thank you for being on the episode of Pill Talk Podcast, giving out some knowledge, information and the daily dose to motivate the people to move forward. Um, I really appreciate you for taking time out your busy schedule. And uh, thank you. Yeah. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. This is another episode of Pill Talk Podcast. Until next time.